but please bring them back so other people have an opportunity to have a look at them as well. Okay, well, what are we going to look at today? Shunyata. Well, this is a vexed one, this one. Uh, we may now make movement really into Mahayana Buddhism quite strongly. Having said that, I want to say really there is no distinction between Mahayana Buddhism and non-Mahayana Buddhism. It's all a continuum. Uh, just a difference of emphasis, actually, a slight difference of vision between the two traditions. However, having said that, having said that, the um, Mahayana tradition, and for those of you who don't know, just a kind of little bit of background, the Mahayana tradition grows up in India somewhere around about the second century BCE. Um, some of the oldest of the sutras, obviously, and there's now. Um, Sanskrit material as opposed to Pali material start to be composed around about the second century, and all of the compositions are in Sanskrit; they're not in Pali. Okay, that marks a big difference, a big change. Um, really, we have the growth of a whole set of alternative scriptures to the Nikayas and the Agamas, and this alternative set of scriptures is known as the Prajnaparamita the Perfection of Insight Sutras. Um, and these start to be composed, as I say, from about the 2nd century onwards. And really there are three major terms that come out of these. They're baggy monsters, most of them, of texts, of which it's very difficult to make any kind of coherent sense in a lot of them. But there are three major terms which become three major driving forces of Mahayana Buddhism that arise out of this. The first, figure, the first is the figure of the Bodhisattva, the hero or heroine of the Prajnaparamita Sutras. The second is what motivates the Bodhisattva, which is the term bodhicitta. And I always make a plea at this time, every time I teach this, is please pronounce it bodhicitta, not bodhicitta. (laughs) (laughs) I always get this impression of things bounding across the African savannah. (laughs) when I hear the word cheetah. <laughs> Sorry, that's my little foible. I must own up to that one. <laughs> okay, so bodhicitta is um, the motivating force, the driving force behind the career of the bodhisattva, whether they are female or male. And there's a female bodhisattva sitting up there called Tara. Yeah. And so there's both male and female figures in the, in the world of the bodhisattva. Um, the motivating force is bodhicitta, which is the desire to become a fully awakened Buddha for the benefit of all sentient beings, out of compassion for them. So you can see why we're talking about this. Uh, so it's out of this, what's called mahakaruna. It's not just karuna, it's mahakaruna. It's out of the great compassion that this arises. You know, the great compassion to see all beings devoid of suffering, devoid of dukkha. So that becomes a vision. And why do you want to become a fully-fledged, awakened Buddha? Is because it's only really a Buddha that can help. So it's not focused on the concept of the Arahat, but it's focused on the concept of the Bodhisattva who's going to become a fully-awakened Buddha. The actual normal terminology for this is to become a fully-awakened Buddha for the benefit of all sentient beings. That is what the Bodhisattva aims at. Uh, As a consequence of that, in traditional terms, when you take the vow to become 
and you know, take the Bodhisattva vows, become a fully awakened Buddha for the benefit of all sentient beings, there is going to be countless rebirths that you have to go through in order to reach that stage. That's what's there within the traditional stories. It's there within the Jataka tales of Theravada Buddhism as well. The countless rebirths that the, the Bodhisattva, the equivalent figure in Theravada, had to go through to become um, the Buddha who then gave the dispensation of which you know, we've been sharing some of that dispensation and Dharma with you over these last two weeks. Um, what I see this is as a, as a wondrous commitment. Yeah, it really is you know, the arising of compassion, the wondrous commitment that dedicates yourself to helping. Now, you might not want to see it in those terms, the helping of you know, um, becoming a fully-fledged Buddha in order to benefit all sentient beings, but it's the desire to do so. Here's a positive use of desire. Yeah, the desire to wish to help as many, many beings as you come across. And that really is the motivational factor behind um, this thing that we call Mahayana Buddhism. Often this is translated as um, the great vehicle, Mahayana, which is literally the way it means. Uh, it seems that really more of the impetus is the vehicle to the great. Yeah. That's what it seems to be implying, the vehicle to the great, to the great vision of the benefit of benefiting of all beings. Um, taking away their dukkha or helping and encouraging showing ways that they can take away their own dukkha in this so that's the kind of background to this element that I want to talk about because the third term that's there within these texts within these Mahayana's texts is this term shunyata usually translated to emptiness which I find personally a very sterile term you know it also seems a very negative term, doesn't it? You know, this is empty, and that is empty, and this is empty, and you are empty, and the world is empty, and things like that. It seems very sterile. The term shunyata, and again, I don't know if this helps or hinders you, but I shall share it anyway. <laughs> um, the term shunyata is derived from a Sanskrit root, which is shu, which means to swell. Um, it's as if it's pregnant with possibilities as well. So the term shunyata refers to, in a sense, everything and nothing. Yeah, and specifically a nothing of a certain sort, which I'll come on to. Now, as we've seen, hopefully, through some of the things I've said to you before, that... One of the overriding concerns of the Buddhist tradition and our practice, really, is to, in a sense, start to quell the grasping mind, to deal with the mind which is constantly grasping after things and the class which is constantly grasping after others. And, you know, that dependent origination talk, well, we, and we talked a little bit about the links last night, the links between feeling and what does it immediately arise? Grasping, craving, you know. Grasping, cr grasping and craving actually are a complex which arise together. Shunyata is one of the antidotes to this. And this is the way it's meant to be seen as an antidote. And this term isn't a Mahayana's term. It's there within the Pali Nikayas. Um, the main figure who explicates all this stuff, somebody called Nagarjuna, and Nagarjuna is a second century Indian uh, practitioner, great practitioner, um, I personally, this is my very own personal view, which I share, I think there are only two great figures in the history of Buddhism. One is the Buddha and the other is Nagarjuna. And Nagarjuna says exactly what the Buddha says. 
or comes to restate it you know, in a different way and to try and correct all the problems that have happened in the history of Buddhism and correct practice. Um, and, I, and I'll just leave this, and I'll, I'll, pick it up on it, I'll pick up on it later. Basically, the philosophy of Nagarjuna can be summed up like this. Shut up. <laughs> what about the go-away bit? <laughs> it doesn't have that. And what it means by shut up is to try and stop the mind from constantly, constantly engaging in construction which it thinks is real. He goes through a whole process of trying to show that anything that we say is actually devoid of any sense. Any of it. (laughs) And so the, the only consequence of this is you can do, you can continue to chatter, you know, I mean internally as well as externally, about the way things are. In other words, opinions, ditti or drishti, as it's called in Sanskrit. You know, but um, there's something that you get the Buddha speaking very strongly about in the Pali Canon, which is mitcha ditti. We all hold these views and opinions about the way things are, but it's not the way things are. Yeah. But unfortunately, the chattering mind tends to still continue to grasp after those things. Um, you know, and we place this on the world. This is our grid that we place on the world, our construction of the world, that the world is like this, that you are like that. You know, I am this sort of person. Yeah. And we believe it. Yeah. That's the big problem, is that we believe it. We believe that that is the case because, in a sense, we've said it. Yeah. This is from the biggest metaphysical constructions down to just the ordinary rubbish that often comes out of our mouths. <laughs> you know, that we believe what we say um, and actually in a way what um, Nagarjuna is really up to in saying shut up is don't believe a word you say <laughs> because actually it's not the way it is now to get to, the, to explaining why he's saying that let me take you through a little kind of seemingly intellectual story and I want to really put it in the place, place of practice Place, place of practice or the context of practice here and what it really means to us. Because <clears throat> the only way I can get to it is by kind of laying it out a little bit. Shunyata, everybody thinks this is a really difficult concept to grasp hold of. Um, often it gets mistaken even for an absolute. You know? um, people tend to think, well, you know, the way is not the way the world is, it's simply Shunyata, and that's the absolute truth about the way things are. And it almost gets deified. Yeah, some traditions it almost has been. And this is not the way it is. Shunyata, let me, let's try and put it into context here. Shunyata is simply the absence of something. That is all it means. What it means is the absence of something we believe to be there in experience. And this absence is the absence of any kind of essential nature to anything. There is no essential nature to anything. There is no essence to anything. There is no essence to you or I. And hopefully you would have got a little bit of that on what I was telling you about anatma or anatta. That rather than there being an essence called self, there is a process. A series of interdependent factors which give rise to the notion of something like a self. 
there. And in many ways, the discourse of Shunyata is a direct outcome of out of that insight. That if this doesn't possess it, neither does anything else. Some processes just happen to be slower than other processes. Because, let's take the basic Buddhist, Buddhist teaching, that all things are impermanent. All things are changing. Nothing remains the same. All things depend on causes and conditions for their existence. Nothing arises out of nothing. Nothing arises, as they say, ex nihilo. Nothing arises out of simply zero. So everything that is has a cause for its existence. If everything that exists has a cause for its existence, then it can't have any essential reality or any essential stability to it. Probably a better way of putting it. Now, I will encourage you to interact with me this, because this is a little bit more difficult for some of you who are coming across this. So please interrupt me tonight, you know, today, I should say, rather than kind of just listen, if this bits you don't understand. Because what the term shunyata is referring to is the absence of any essence. It's devoid, actually. actually the way I would probably translate it is devoidness. Things are devoid of any intrinsic existence, any self-sustaining existence, any element of them which doesn't depend on causes and conditions. You heard me say the other day, the generalised formula for dependent origination is this happens, that happens, that ceases to happen, this ceases to happen. If that is the case, then everything is causal. Everything is in causal connectedness. And there is nothing intrinsic to anything whatsoever. Now, let me... I can give you a bit of logic. Can you take a bit of logic? <laughs> in, uh, in part of my training when I was in Tibetan Monastery, um, part of the training was uh, training in logic. And Shunyata has a particular logic to it because it's <clears throat> a certain type of negative. And um, we list negatives in, in this particular training into two types of negatives. There's what's called an affirming negative and a non-affirming negative. Here is an affirming negative, as it was given. This is direct textual stuff. This gives you a little impression of what it's like to be on debate court. An affirming negative is this. is the the fat monk Devadatta doesn't eat during the day. So, what is it doing? It's implying something, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So it negates something and implies something else. So I'll just say it again. The fat monk, Devadatta, doesn't eat during the day. So it's implying he's eating some other time, isn't it? (laughs) That is an affirming negative. So it negates and affirms at the same time. Actually, I got quite excited about this when I started learning, because I saw it all the way through English, that we do this sort of thing. We say something negating and implying something else with it. Here is a non-affirming negative. Again, this is a textual example, directly from the uh, from Sanskrit text, which is the horns of the rabbit don't exist. The what? The horns? No. <laughs> no, the homes exist. The horns of, of the rabbits don't exist. That is a non-affirming negative. So what's that doing, if you look at it? It's simply negating without suggesting anything else, isn't it? Now, what... Shunyata is, is a non-affirming negative. 
It negates something without suggesting anything else. It says what doesn't exist. What it says that doesn't exist is intrinsic existence. Well, actually, literally self-existent. Nothing is self-existent in our experience. Us or any other phenomena that we come across, none of it is self-existent. None of it has, to use again the kind of language that's used in the text, none of it has existence from its own side. Yeah, nothing possesses existence from its own side. So when Hindus say everything is impermanent, they imply that Brahman is there. Yeah. So they will, they will use it as an affirming yes. logic. Yes. They would use impermanence as affirming. That's right, because in, for those who are not familiar with this, in, in certain Hindu traditions, particularly Advaita tradition, the idea is that everything emanates from Brahman. So everything else is, in, everything is impermanent except the one thing it all emanates from, which is Brahman. And, and that doesn't have causes and conditions for its existence. Yeah. Now, put it in our Western terms, you understand it a little bit more. God. You couldn't have God having causes for his existence because something would be greater than God. <laughs> yeah, in that case. So in a sense, in, in that kind of religious speak of theism, or theism, then God is the greatest possible being because it doesn't have causes for its existence. It's self-existent. And everything emanates or is part of, you know, depending on the theology, part of God in this way. Um, can I ask you just like, two reactions to the um, non-affirming negatives and mm. the affirming negatives? Mm-hmm. And the first one, it felt like I still had some ground under me. Mm-hmm. Because actually it was implying that the monk did eat at some point. Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> and with the, the, the second one, I had a sense of quite a little bit scary of something falling away. Yeah. Is this a part of what is supposed to happen? That's exactly what's supposed to happen. Shunyata pulls the rug out straight from under your feet. Thank you. That's exactly what's supposed to happen in terms of experience. So in, in examining Shunyata, you're examining actually the reality of things. So, let me try and put this in. Well, when we use the term shunyata, we're saying, and I'm going to use the term emptiness, because this is one you're going to come across when you read it in the texts, you know, if you read this stuff. <laughs> Generally what you find is it used, translated as emptiness. So, for example, this cushion, this microphone, is empty of any self-existence. It doesn't say anything more than that. That is all it's saying. Is it saying anything else? If it's not affirming anything about it, it's just saying it does not possess self-existence. This doesn't possess self-existence. You don't possess self-existence. I don't possess self-existence. The walls don't, you know, and so on and so forth. Nothing around us possesses any self-existence. So what kind of existence perhaps does it have? Conditioned. Yes. Conditioned existence, that's right. Yes. Now some of you may have heard of two truths. Yeah, these are in Paramatā Sutras as well. Um, two truths. Well, something's called Samvriti Satya, which is actually conventional truth, and then ultimate truth. Well, the ultimate truth is that there is only conventional truth. In other words, things only depend on causes and conditions for their existence. That is the ultimate truth. Mm. So there is no absolute truth. Mm. The Most absolute truth. The absolute truth is that there is only conventional truth. And that really pulls the rugs out for your face. 
because most people within certainly any kind of spiritual religious striving are looking for something absolute, you know, for some kind of absolute ground. And if you really come, this, this one will send your brain into a spin. This is what I usually do. This is what I usually do with my students at the university. You know, when I'm describing this, that Shunyata is the absolute absence of all absolutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's recorded, don't worry. <laughs> I'll just say that again. It's the absolute absence of all absolutes. Because actually, and this I'm going to try and take this out of the intellectual realm, and I hope it hasn't been just in the intellectual realm, but I'm going to try and take it out into the realm of what actually is going on. Most of what human life is about is searching for certainties. Something that doesn't change. That's what human life has generally been about. You know, from the Greeks all the way through to from, you know, Platonized Christianity um, in the East, looking for something that's certain that doesn't change. It's almost like you know, we don't believe what the Buddha says. The Buddha says everything. Not just some things, but everything is impermanent. So if the causes and conditions which sustain something go out of existence or change, then that thing will change and possibly go out of existence as well. Now that is a pretty, you know, there's two ways of looking at that. That's either liberating or it's scary. (laughs) If you really take that on board. I came across a wonderful story. I always, I always say I wished I'd actually invented this one myself. Because it's such a wonderful little phrase. Relax. Nothing is under control. <laughs> <laughs> because that's the way things are. But we don't relax because things aren't under our control. What we do is we search for some degree of certainty. Something which isn't going to change. Now, that's exactly what went on in ancient Greece. That was what Plato and Socrates were on about, looking for the unchanging essences of things. Looking for something which was the real. The real was that which didn't change. Now, because we live in a phenomenal world, and that's a Greek word, phenomena, we live in a phenomenal world, phenomena was kind of derogatory. It meant change, the things that were changing. Things that didn't change were noumenal. They were there and they were unchanging realities. Now, I'm only giving to this because it's actually part of our cultural heritage, part of our Western cultural heritage. Can I come to that phenomenal? It ended up being something incredible. Yeah, well, it's the way things change their meanings, isn't it? It's like, you know, sophisticated was a term of abuse in ancient Greece. (laughs) 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 Or sophistical. (laughs) Because it referred to a group of spurious arguers. Now, now to be sophisticated, to be kind of, you know, really kind of in the the top niche, isn't it, somehow? Um, But these words just change their meaning, and culturally they change their meaning. But phenomena, in this way, was was anything that was changing. So the real was outside of the changing world. Now, let's just give you an example. Plato and Socrates. I mean, the Socratic dialogues are wonderful. If you've never read them, they're really great fun to read. I mean, they're really good. I mean... Socrates was a real pain in the bum to Athenian society. He went around asking these people who were supposedly experts in all their various fields, you know, um, you tell me what justice is, you're a lawyer. And by the time he'd finished with them, the person who was supposed to be the expert in it was proved to know nothing about it whatsoever um, by Socrates. Because the person who was the expert in whether it was 
justice or goodness or beauty or whatever it was, would say, you know, this is an example of justice and this is an example of justice. And Socrates would go, well, they're just examples. You haven't told me what justice is. Because that's just an example. What is that example? Why is that example justice and why is that example? What is the essential reality behind both of them that makes them justice? Can you see why that, how that question goes? Mm. Yeah. So he's asking... Because he's know that it can't be found. No, he thought it could be found. Yeah. That's very much the kind of you know, Socratic, platonic route was actually searching for the ultimate reality um, of, of whatever was. And it becomes rather strange because by the time he's finished this question, he's actually had to put, this is by Plato's time, they've had to put these essences into some kind of metaphysical reality you know a bit like um, the christian heaven and actually to die was better than to live because you went to dwell with the absolute realities and this is you know all this stuff came in through st augustine into christianity and so we get you know platonic platonized what i call christianity here but to cut, you know, even that, you know, the idea of the immortal soul, that which isn't going to change, that which goes to heaven. Now, this is very crude. I mean, a lot of theology, I don't want to denigrate this, I just want to give you a picture. The idea that we've been searching for these certainties. You know, who are you? Well, I'm this type of person. And you don't say, well, kind of, I'm just like this person today, but I might be somebody else tomorrow different. You don't imply that. You kind of imply that there's something unchanging within us. You know, when you say, I dislike, you say, that's kind of really me. I dislike. Yeah. And I couldn't be any different. There's implication in this behind us. But that's the essence of how I am. I hate peas. <laughs> or whatever it might be. Yeah. So the essence of you is, I'm a pea hater. <laughs> 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 so that's what we're doing. We're all the time doing this to ourselves and doing it to others, you know, implying essences to them. Have you ever had this done to you when somebody tries to pigeonhole you and say this is the type of you're that type of person, aren't you? you know, this is not this is not arbitrary. This is actually this is the language of essentialism, and this is the very language that um, basically the Buddha and Nagarjuna is very concerned that we don't take seriously, you know, by showing that it is vacuous, ultimately. I, I just, I, the point is that it's vacuous is one outside, the, the important bit, mm. but what about it's, the, the workability we need to function, mm. that we have to um, take certain things, if they're ultimately untrue, we still have to have this relative truth Mm. And we're always getting lost in relative truth. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't see how we can get out of this, you know, catch twenty two situation, because we need to, uh, you, you know, <clears throat> workable truths, aren't they? Yeah, we well, them. but they are conventions. In understanding that they are conventions, we don't hold them as being the ultimate. But we forget. Well, that's exactly. <laughs> The discourse of shunyata, this application of shunyata, both meditatively and in sense looking in our ordinary lives, is actually to undermine taking it seriously, taking the conventional seriously. The conventional is modes of communication. It's that which helps us to communicate 
about things. But unfortunately, we take it all too seriously. And particularly when we start talking about reality and religious and spiritual matters, we take the utterances of discourses as being the absolute truth about the way things are, rather than fingers pointing at a moon. And that's the reason why you'll find particularly that image used in Chinese Buddhism, you know, the, finger, you know, the finger pointing at the moon shouldn't be mistaken for the moon. You know, because it's not. So in other words, the, the way things are, in a sense, is outside of language. That's the way things are. Now, we just ceaselessly chatter about the way things are. I'm doing it now. Is that why in some of these kind of yogic songs of, of, of enlightenment, it's always they never say what what is. It mm. always it's all it is not this nor that, neither this nor yeah. that. Yeah, you get that. You get. That. You get that. I mean, that, that's a very well, that's even that's even used in in Hindu thought. The, what's called neti neti, neither this nor that. Yeah, it's not this. It's not this. It's not this. It's not this. It's pointing to the idea that language, and this was actually something that was deeply ingrained in Indian culture, that language actually never really got through to reality. That language was somehow useful and extremely useful, but it didn't actually capture that which was it was, that which is wasn't captured within any of our linguistic formulations. It's going back a little bit to something I was saying last night. Mm. Now, when we utter things, we take it all too deadly seriously. Yeah. We really do. We believe in our utterances, often. Sometimes if you repeat them enough times, then you t- tend to get a bit of a vacuity to them. You, know, you begin to see that they're devoid of any truth-giving reality to them. So let me say just a little bit more Nagarjuna, and I'll then come back and relate it a, a little bit more dynamically to practice. Yeah. Because what Nagarjuna is doing in his own, for anybody who picks this stuff up, and you might do, you might look at it, in, what Nagarjuna is doing is he's taking any utterances, both by Buddhists and non-Buddhists, and he's deconstructing them. He uses a particular type of argumentation which is called reductio ad absurdum which actually means reduction to absurdity. So he'll take any kind of argumentation. For example, if somebody says this is, he'll prove it's not, using exactly the same argumentation, introducing no premises of his own into the argument, but simply the logic of the argument itself. If somebody said this isn't, he'll prove it is. In other words, he's showing consequences of what we state, always end up undermining us or shooting ourselves in the foot. (laughs) So any statements that we make about this is the way it is or this is the way it isn't, he can show the opposite in each case. In many ways, I mean, I often often likened um, Nagarjuna to a philosophical virus. (laughs) He gets inside other people's arguments and destroys them from within. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's what he does by not introducing any premises of his own into it that's very easy isn't it when arguing against somebody to bring in other premises to introduce our own premises and say well it's not like this because and we'll lay out our own premises so other western deconstructionist mm. philosophers they mm. deconstruct and then they replace it with something else that's right 
Nagarjuna doesn't. He just simply deconstructs and leaves it at that. Would Nagarjuna be rejected because he doesn't do that in, in Western sort of philosophical yeah. perspective? Yeah, probably. He doesn't state it. In fact, one of his most famous uh, sayings is, um, I cannot be refuted um, because I don't say anything. <laughs> Exactly. Now, this whole procedure, just for those who are interested, actually is what's used on the Tibetan debate courtyard. It's kind of philosophical jujitsu. Mm-hmm. You're throwing people by their own argument, not by anything you're introducing extraneous to it. But that, as it may, I mean, I can, again, it slightly sounds up in the air, doesn't it? I presume, does it to you? Does it sound all up in the air a bit? Yeah. Well, it might. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Now, what the real purport of this is, what the real purport of it is, is when we search for certainties, now I don't think that is um, a matter of intellectualism, that is a matter of what we do existentially. We search for certainties. We grasp after essences. Now, how do I put that in regular kind of English for those who are perhaps not getting it? When I say something or someone is beautiful, I don't merely say, well, it's merely a matter of cultural conditioning and products production on it's just kind of contingent on certain factors that this person I consider to be beautiful I go they're really beautiful (laughs) (laughs) you know and what does that lead to grasping it leads to craving because I think or I project into that person the essence of beauty or, let's put it in, in the moral ethical sphere, the essence of goodness or badness. Yeah. This is something we're doing all the time. Yeah. Somebody, for, let me give you an example. Somebody does something to us and helps us. Thereafter, we consider them to be good. They might follow that up with a whole string of bad actions, but no, no, they're good. They're really good people. Somebody does something to you bad one day, Follow up with a whole string of good actions, you know, helpful actions. No, no, they're bad. What are they trying to get out of me? What do they want? <laughs> does any of this sound familiar? I know these are kind of slightly crazy examples, but does this sound familiar? This is what we do, isn't it? You know, we, in a sense, fixate somebody. We see them in a particular way. We project onto them. The idea of goodness or badness. Now, what Shunyatar is saying, what the discourse of Shunyatar is saying, is they are empty of any intrinsic goodness or any intrinsic badness, any intrinsicality whatsoever. They can be and will display good actions, and they can be and they will display good actions, just like ourselves. That's exactly what we will do. The whole method of movement in Buddhist thought, of course, is to, and practice, is to move from bad actions to good actions. But it's not saying that the essence of you is good. It's that we change the mind, we transform the mind. We transform our minds from being predominated by unwholesomeness to be predominated by wholesomeness. But it's still not essential. Now, this is good news, because if you had an essential reality to you, and that was just, let's hypothetically say, it was bad, there's no hope. You couldn't change. But 
even say that. They don't. I'm not saying about Hindu thought. You can't be touched by anything you do, good or bad. Yeah, but there is, an, there is an essential reality to you. Yeah. But I'm not even getting into that discourse there right. with Hinduism. What I'm saying is, in terms of, even when we project any kind of essence to the person, when we project an essence to the person, or if we think we have an essence, actually, you're stultifying change. Yeah, I cannot possibly change. And I hear this, and I hear this again and again, I'm this way. I can't change. My parents were like that. They were just saying, I can't possibly, I'm too old to change. And things like that. They change anyway. <laughs> yeah. All of us change. And we say, we can't change, we can't do that. No, 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 it's outside, I can't possibly. The point is you can. There is nothing essential there which cannot change. Now, this whole thing about Shunyata is to stop us grasping after something which is unchanging within us. There is no thing which is unchanging. So actually, probably another translation of this could be no thingness, hyphenated, rather than anything else, rather than emptiness. What we're talking about is there are only processes, and if there are only processes, there are only interconnected aspects. Now, in a way... What Nagarjuna is presenting us with is a picture without trying to lay it into words. If everything is dependently originated, then everything is empty. Because everything is dependent on causes and conditions. And even dependent origination is empty of any intrinsic reality. Because it's a causal process. Does that emptiness that you've just mentioned make our relative world full? Yes. Now, let me take a very easy example. I mean, when I say, for example, the the cushion, let's just take a very banal example. The cushion is empty of intrinsic existence. Doesn't mean I can't put this on top of it. Not saying it's not there. In the fullness of its being, it's still there. What I'm saying is it's empty of something I believe it to possess. Or I might be projecting into it. Now, I don't tend to project essences into cushions personally. <laughs> I don't know if you do, but I, you, we do get gulled into projecting essences into people, into behaviour. You know, stuff like you know, evil. It's a big word. Where we project onto you know, people that do actually evil actions, but are not evil. And so what this is undermining is any form of that discourse of projection, or that, you know, that simple mental projection that we're engaged in all the time. Because we grasp after things because we believe they possess something. For example, they possess something that's going to make us happy. John, going back to the cushion, I mean, if you, is, is it projecting into it when you, you'd say, well, it, it, it's, it's attractive? That's, yeah. That's judging. And what if it, it, is, um, well, it is comfortable to sit on? Yeah. That's all. Well, we, for, exa- for example, if, I, if it's a particularly nice brocaded cushion mm. or something like that, I said, that's a beautiful cushion. Mm. Now, now, if that beauty then is making me say, well, I must buy it, 
I must have it, I must possess it. And that's actually a lot of what actually our material culture is about, projecting mythologies about the essential nature of this thing that's going to make you feel a better person if you possess it, if you have it. That's how material culture works. That's the essence, if you want to use that word, of all the adverts. Yeah, that's what's going on in them. If you project into it, it is comfortable to sit on. Is that projecting into it? I mean, that's a practical thing, isn't it? It could be a practical thing, yeah. It might be. I mean, for ex- but, for example, that can be soon undermined because if you sit on it for five hours... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a, you, you could use it for something other than sitting on, presumably. Exactly, yes. Yeah. So there is no essential nature to it. I mean, we, we now have this microphone stand, which appears to be a cardboard box covered with white <laughs> linen. At what point does a table become not a table when you start taking it apart? Is that the same kind of thing? Yeah. You take the legs off it, is it still a table? That's right. You know, take the top off it and leave the legs on, is it That's still right. a table? Yeah. Now, for those of you who want to connect this with the, ordinary, with the um, Theravada school, there is something called the Questions of King Melinda. King Melinda, Melinda. It's in the it's in the uh, Pali Canon. It's one of the scriptural things. Now Nagasena is a monk who goes to visit a Bactrian Greek king, whose actual name is Menander. And he's actually historical, and we know we have to actually have coins with his head on. So it's actually he's an actual historical king. Um, but Nagasena, who's a Buddhist monk, goes to him, and it's exactly what he goes through in trying to describe the doctrine of Anatta. He says, you know. Is the chariot its wheels? Is it the bit that holds the horses? Is it the bit that you stand on? Where's the chariot? In other words, there is no intrinsic reality to a chariot. It's just a composition of parts with a name. That is all it is. What about the the process that you talk about and like the relationship of cause and effect? Is that empty as well? In, In a sense, yes, it is. It depends on the projecting mind. It's got to have a perceiving mind which is involved in that causal process to understand the causality of it. So even in terms of talking about any essential reality or any essential connectedness, then that is empty. So it's really trying to say everything is devoid of any, any essence that we might care to project into it whatsoever. Now, and even, this is something the gardener goes on even further to say, that Shunyata itself is empty. Yeah. So I didn't quite hear the, the apophantic theology. Yeah. I think there is, to a degree, yes, there is. Um, well, it's a kind of via negativa that's often used. Um, to describe something. You don't describe it by what it is, but by what it's not. Yeah. And actually, let's go back to a very... Go back to love. Let's go back to love and kindness. St. Paul, Corinthians. That's exactly what he does in Corinthians. You know, love is not this, love is not that, love is not this, love is not that. By the end of it, you get an impression of what love might be by descriptions of what it's not. And in a sense when we start to take away the discourse of what something is and start to describe what it's not, that's the discourse of Shunyata. That's what we're doing. We're actually beginning to see it through what is not. It is not essentially this, and not essentially that. Now, 
where I'm going to go with this next week with you is actually into the ethics side of it. Because there's huge ethical implications behind this. And it might not be obvious. Um, This is the basis, actually, for compassion. Believe it or not. You say, oh, how did that happen? (laughs) It's the basis for compassion. And I'll give you a kind of sneak preview. (laughs) The sneak preview is this, is that if we don't have isolated individual essences, um, and that's actually the way that we can perceive ourselves as an ego, as an isolated individual ego or essence, which is separated from all other isolated egos and individuals. And this is actually the alienation that many people experience in the world, feeling alone in the world. Is what we have is a world, and this is by implication obviously dependent on origination, is that is not isolated individuals cut off from each other, but interdependent. This is what we have, is a picture of total interdependence. Now, when we think of ourselves as isolated individual things in a world of things populated by other people who are things, then it's very alienating and we're very fragmented and we're very, very cut off. Yet, it's a complete mythology, isn't it? An absolute total mythology. You, I, everyone else are like babies. We need looking after. None of us can exist without others. From the things you've eaten to the clothes you wear, to the air you breathe, it's all part of one vast causal process. And doesn't it seem rather arrogant to think that I'm isolated out of that? That I'm somehow this unchanging essence that, that can't be affected, that I'm an island, you know? unaffected by what goes on with everybody else. So actually, the, if you like, the, the idea of Shunyatama is not just a philosophical idea, it's actually to move into the field of ethics. Because it means that if we are interconnected, then care is an important part of this. Yeah. To care for that process of interdependence, of the ways of supporting each other, of not abusing each other, I can abuse you very easily if I think you're a thing. Yeah. In fact, that's a lot of, you know, objectifying, you know, objectifying is actually a big part of abuse. If you want to abuse another race, objectify them. So say they are like this. This is the sort of people they are. If you want to do that to an individual, you say, well, this is the sort of person they are, I can't possibly do this, and you can abuse them very easily. So that objectifying process is part of that essentialism because you're saying what they are. And then, actually, this is the way identity is built up. Identity is built up by what we are not. We are not like that. They are like that. So group identity and individual identity is built up in that way as well. So the whole of this particular approach of Shunyata is undermining. You know, and I think, as Elizabeth said, it should actually pull the rug out from underneath your feet. You, feel, you should feel in free fall for quite a bit with these ideas. And they're not just ideas. You know, because the whole purpose of the meditations on Shunyata 
on emptiness is to actually begin to perceive it, to really start to feel it. The first stage has to be the appropriation intellectually of it, the understanding of it, at least on some cognitive level. That's not going to change you. It's only the experience of it that's going to change you, of seeing our total interdependence, our almost babyhood in this world. That will take the sting out of any arrogance that you might feel uh, about being in this world. I think I'll shut up and just leave ten minutes for comments. I don't have to be questions, by the way. There can be comments about this stuff. It's the actions that are good. Yeah. It is. I wouldn't too worry too much about it. But yes, I know it is exactly that. It's 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 the language that we use. And okay, in in this instance, um, I, don't, I wouldn't take it as I say terribly seriously. But in a lot of the instances where we use this kind of language, that you're a good person, aren't you? Or you're a, you know, have you ever had anybody had to said this to you? You're a relaxed and calm person, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know that has a kind of you think. Do they know me? <laughs> or something of that sort, you know, where people try to place you in a particular position. But the temptation, of course, is if you're placed in a position, and I might say that even about sitting in this role, sitting up front here, you know, it's doing this, is when you get the projection, is the temptation, of course, in any projection, is to try and live up to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But shouldn't you, your meditation teacher? <laughs> <laughs> does that have big connotations? Does <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. But the thing is, of course, is then there becomes that temptation to want to live up to it, and then you, then you're not the process that you are. You're attempting to fix yourself in a particular model, and of course, that someday it's going to shatter, you know, because you can't live up to it. And then you get all the problems with you know, teachers being seen or whoever it is is being seen as not what they projected themselves as. And actually the projection came from the other way. <laughs> yeah. But we're all then, uh, that was only an example, but we're all doing that to each other, projecting things on, thinking this person is this particular type of person. But then, of course, you go, you've changed. <laughs> you go, oh, have I really? <laughs> And do you see what I mean about this? The moment you start to engage in this kind of language, it's the language of an attempt to fix. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that has all kinds of moral consequences and ethical consequences, ultimately, in that, in, in that attempting to either fix the other or fix ourselves. Yes. Which is why, like Arjuna says, shut up. <laughs> yeah. Now, can I just, just before anybody else has any other question, can I just put that in a little bit more serious way? I, I did that to be deliberately provocative. What, what he's actually saying is reality cannot be spoken about, it can only be experienced. 
That is what he's saying, which is why we should be quiet in the kinds of assertions that we make about it. And if we do make assertions, hold them a lot more freely about it. They become provisional. Yeah, his whole argument, actually, just to give you a little bit of history, his whole argument is basically with something, a tradition which is known as the Abhidharma in Indian thought, which is part of the Tripitaka, part of the three baskets that are taught. And he says there's nothing wrong with the Abhidharma, apart from when the Abhidharma believes it's true. <laughs> but this is the way the mind is. Does he come from the Abhidharma, did you say? No, he's criticising the Abhidharma tradition. And he thinks the Abhidharma is very efficacious, it's very useful, as long as you don't believe it's true. The problem is, we take these things, these systems, and we believe that they are true. So then you become an Abhidharmist, or whatever the ist is or ism is. Some Buddhists do. Yeah. yeah, that's that's another story. <laughs> but to, to what the it and yeah. puts me off. but what the Abhidharmas have is the idea that, or certain Abhidharmas have, is the idea that um, you break reality down into smaller and smaller parts of existence, and then it's those very fine, almost atomic elements that possess the reality, and they are self-existent. So, in other words, if you want to understand why the way the world is, it's empty right down to these very tiny, tiny elements that can't be analysed any further, which are not empty. They're not empty of intrinsic existence. They're real. Yeah. And what Nagarjuna is saying, that's not the case. Anything that is, is divisible. Anything that is, is furtherly divisible. It's further dependent on causes and conditions. As we know, any atomic theory you know, is broken down further and further into minutia and minutia elements, yeah. each of which is furtherly divisible. Yeah. I was thinking about Sorry. my interview with you, John, mm. and um, how really I should have kept my mouth shut, <laughs> because what I did in that interview was went on about that personality and this personality, mm. and the you know, the well, in actual fact, from what you've just said, that's all it is, is personality. It's a fabrication. Yeah, most of it is. It's very difficult to see, you know, especially your own, because you're right there in the middle of it. This, this, you know, it's, it, for some reason, I've got blinkers on. You know, mm. sort of, you can't see. Yeah. Yeah, well, that, that, that's absolutely right. It's, you know, it's, in a way, the, the practices of Metta Karuna and that are helping us to break down and I'll do this next week with you. I'll try and connect the two things together. Because it's helping us to break down and see that that person who you are engaging with, whatever, they're devoid of what you're projecting onto them. Yeah. They're not intrinsically difficult. They're not intrinsically your beloved friend. Or any of that sort of thing. You know, I won't go into it all now. But they are a process which exhibits good qualities or exhibits sometimes difficult qualities. Yeah. And that is all it is. Yeah. So, and actually following on from what you've just said you know, about the interview, that's why, for example, in some in, in Zen traditions and Chan traditions, of course, that the master will not say anything. Yeah. Or just go, boom! Yeah. 
like this to somebody. <laughs> no, to try and shock them out of the uh, kind of the stuff that you're going on, the chatter that's going on in the head. Especially if you begin with the word I. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They just give you a whack and send you back to your seat. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's that kind of it's breaking it's breaking down the fixation on the on the language that we're using <coughs> rather than the experience that we're having. So let me say that phrase because I think is an important phrase. Reality can only be experienced, it cannot be spoken about. That is the kind of real thrust of what's being spoken about here. And that's why Nagarjuna is, you know, as I put it crudely, is saying shut up, but is really saying, you know, look at the assertions you're making. When you say it, are you just holding it lightly? When I say to somebody, you're a bad person or you're a good person or this is beautiful or that is ugly or whatever. Do you see that, for example, ugliness and beauty is a mere convention? We don't, do we? Yet, if you go to something like the National Gallery in London and look at all these different ideas of beauty through the centuries, you will see it's a conditioned phenomenon. It's a culturally conditioned phenomenon. Other cultures' idea of beauty is completely different often from ours. And so it's about learning to hold any assertion, because we are living in the conventional world, we will continue to make assertions, but holding those assertions in a different way from the way that we normally hold them, which is very strongly, in a very, very fixated fashion. In fact, most of the time, as I say, we believe what we say. Robert, you can say something. Yeah, I would, um, <clears throat> I'm sure there aren't any sort of liar paradoxes or anything hiding in, in the kind of logic of mm. emptiness. But, yeah, to say you know, all language is vacuous, mm. it, it does seem like, a, like an intellectual tightrope. You, you know, have to walk. Mm. Yeah, it does. In fact, this is why, in a sense, Nagarjuna can't personally himself completely escape it. He can't escape that, you know, because he's still having to use language, in fact, to deconstruct. But the whole idea of the deconstruction that we engage in is to get to a point where you see reality as it is. Yeah. So you use it as a vehicle. Yeah. Let me just give you one last example, because it's almost time for tea. <clears throat> is that in Tibetan debate, and this is real practice, this is what goes on, six hours a day, six days a week, I know because I engaged in it <laughs> for quite a number of years, is that you engage in actually breaking down argumentation, breaking down all assertions that you can say about things, day in, day out, for six days a week. Yeah. Yeah, in other words, there are actually only a number of ways you can say things, um, you know, in terms of those who know philosophy, ontologically. You can make statements about being. It is, it isn't, it neither is or isn't, or it both is and it isn't. And you go through all of those and show that none of them hold, in each case. Now, that's a kind of much more cognitive, intellectual way of trying to do things. Um, It's a very powerful meditation, actually, believe it or not, if you go through it. Um, It's actually termed in Tibetan, turning reasoning into reality. Of actually doing this thing again and again and again and again and again. You literally lift with no ground to stand on at all, other than the ground which is really under your feet, which is reality. Now, you, you can do this 
through the, you know, the bhavana, through the cultivation as well. This is actually what the, really the um, methodology is behind vipassana. It's the same methodology. It is not I, not me, not mine. If you take that as being the three kind of basic statements that the Buddha uses again and again and again about our relation to, to things and ourselves. Not I, not me, not mine. Can't find it anywhere, if you really look. That is no different from shunyata. <laughs> it's exactly the same. However, that's Shunyata part one. You get shun- son of Shunyata <laughs> next week. <laughs> you get some more, do we? Yes. <coughs> yes. <laughs> 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 I, I, I got a question, but I thought maybe I'll wait till next week. Okay. <laughs> but, but John, is that why we're doing a difficult person until we, we can see that there is no difficult or good? Or yes. Just, it kind of dissolves. It dissolves. The idea of difficulty, the idea of goodness, the idea of this person being special, they all dissolve into equanimity, ultimately. That's where they dissolve. But I'll say much more about this next week, because this is what I call the ethics of Shunyata, which is actually probably... To get there, I had to go through this. So those who find this a bit kind of heady, please forgive me, but next week, in a sense, you have to hear some of this, even if you don't take it completely on board, to get where I want to go next week when I talk to you next Wednesday, probably. So... <laughs> Is it boo? <laughs> <laughs> um, who was it? Was it a Greek philosopher who was looking for the fulcrum point with which to move the whole... Archimedes, yeah. Archimedes, yeah. 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 That was one word. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. Well, it's uh, probably supper time, so thank you. And I shall see you next week. <laughs>